1: Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our lovely faces, you can catch this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so go check that out. And joining me today is my partner in all things 80s, the other... John Hughes
0: Lindsay what's going on
1: oh you know just uh, what is going on uh, it's <laughs> Hot. It's hot, yeah. We're, we record this in Los Angeles. It's very hot, but you know, at the risk of doing a stupid pun, we have a hot episode today of Total Eighties. To keep the heat is going to get cranking up because our special guest today has worked in A and R for several major record labels, including most recently Rhino, and he's going to fit right in here as he's a child of the eighties, just like us. So we are going to talk today with him about an eighties music movement. It's beyond a movement that we're long overdue to discuss here on this podcast. And that is hip hop and rap of the 1980s. Our favorites, our first encounters and more. And I can't think of someone better to discuss this topic, this wide ranging topic with us than Duran Bowers. Welcome to the show, Duran.
2: Hey, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Liz, so thank you for inviting me.
1: Yes, uh, there's so much to dig into. I have a feeling this is going to end up being a two-parter. But before we get into this very important topic, which, you know, has so many directions in which it could go, let's talk about uh, your background. How did you get into the music business? What artists have you worked with? Like, what's your uh, what's your uh, resume? Um, I got into
2: the music business, it's going to sound real crazy, but I got into the music business at nine years old, reading billboard magazines and being around... A very famous but not famous cousin, uh, Casual Dupree, who was an MC on the first rap tour and things like that. And I used to be around him holding his suitcase and meetings, and it, it got me excited about the actual business of so it, not the performing part of it. And wow. um, yeah, I kept going. I ended up um, interning for BMG, which is now Sony, and I got my first job at Arista. And I've been taking off ever since then. I worked with a lot of writers, a lot of producers. Denzel uh, Foster McGarrow I worked with, who discovered Involve, so I worked with that. I worked with Dim Joints, who was a huge producer with Dr. Dre, and he decided signed on his name, John Bryant.
1: So, obviously, there's so, like I said, there's so many ways this conversation could go because, you know, the 80s was a golden age for rap. It was, you know, pretty much when rap began. Obviously, it started in the 70s or even the 60s with Last Poets, but, like, 80s is when it really started to come to the mainstream. But let's just start with the beginning for all of us when what's our first memory of for each of us of rap music when we first heard it um john would you like to start
0: sure uh, mine's the most obvious white boy uh in the 80s choice sorry <laughs> but it's blondie rapture i mean i could lie and make something really uh uh to give me some street cred but no it was rapture sorry
1: isn't that the first song with rapping in it that was a top 10 hit you know the charts john right wasn't it like the yeah. first Chart hit with
0: rap? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, and Deronda is going to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure, but I believe it was not the first top forty hit to feature rap, but it was definitely the first top ten hit to feature rap. Because yes. I, yeah, yes, it was. I think Super Hill Game was before Rapture, correct? Um, no,
2: actually, Rapture was. I want to say it may have been a second before then. Ah. Because what was so awesome about Debbie um, Harry was she hung out in New York. She hung out at all those places. She brought in into the studio, and it was a top ten, almost number one record. Ever. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That was the first time that not only the white white audience heard hip hop, but everyone outside of New York. That was the first time that they heard hip hop too.
0: So the, yeah, the thing I really hip-hop. remember about Rapture were the two different versions. You had the single version that really just cut off the most of the rap, really, and then they then sometimes mm-hmm. when it got, when the song got really big. Uh, top forty radio in my my town would play the extended version. I'm like, wait, there's a man from Mars that's eating cars.
1: Yeah, that rap didn't make that much sense. <laughs> now he only eats guitars, apparently. Yes. He goes. To the- well, my first memory of rap, at least hearing the word rap, and and. Having a definition of what rap, quote unquote, is would, I mean, it's rapper's delight, another very obvious choice by Sugar Hill Gang. I think that was 1980 or mm-hmm. maybe 79. I have a very distinct memory of Casey Kasem ta- kind of explaining in a really like nerdy way what rap is like it's talking but it's music and i I mean i love that song and i mean that song um i mean disco was sort of still happening then and it was really it was kind of a disco song and obviously uh has been sampled a bunch of times but that's that's my first memory because it was the first memory of me um understanding the concept of there was a thing called rapping and there was a genre called rapping and it was an art and i do remember even back then and this was a Stupid stigma that lasted forever and still lasts among some raucous to this day that it, you know, rapping wasn't quote unquote real music mm-hmm. because they weren't singing or because they weren't using guitars. And I do remember like hearing my dad say that in the car while we were listening to it, but I never, I never agreed with him. I'm like, my dad was wrong. So Sugar yes. Hill Gang was the first one for me. And, and then, Duran, uh, you know, obviously you were at age nine already wanting to do this for a living, but what's your first memory?
2: And it's like my mom, they were cousins, they were best friends. And I remember one day he came one night, opened his suitcase, he's like, I got a record I want to play you guys, and it was Curtis Blow's The Breaks, and it was I want to say eight nine minutes, and it was just the biggest thing for me because I remember when he used to have house parties, my family was huge on house parties, and the DJ would kind of you know do that a little bit, line words, going to the next record. And I heard this guy do this for nine minutes straight. The beat kept going and it was just so good. He had the party background in the background and everything after that. Because the message was more
1: an extension
2: of good times to me. So it was like, my little mind was confused on, is she rapping or (laughs) or anything like that? But The Breaks was the first pure hip hop record that I ever heard. And it, it
1: it's interesting that you bring up the message because I was going to ask all of you. You know, the, the first songs that we thought about were kind of, you know, more lighthearted party songs, or in the case of Blondie, kind of, you know, didn't really, wasn't, definitely wasn't making any kind of sociopolitical statement, you know. But The Message by Grandmaster Flash and also White Lines um, were probably the first two songs that I recall hearing of rap songs that is, that kind of were, had more of a hard hitting subject matter to them and weren't just about eating cars or, you know, partying or whatever. And I'm, I'm curious uh, your memories of when, especially you Duran, because you mentioned the message, when, you know, you first started to have an idea that, you know, rap was social commentary.
2: The message was, that was actually the first time where you had a group that when the released records they were dressed in the disco almost cowboy uniforms and things like this, and then they made this record about how hard the streets were and just how an everyday thing they talked about how everything from police brutality, to drugs to gangs to everything in one record. And even though they were in New York, that echoed everywhere in the country of someone who was going through that. I grew up in the inner city of LA. It was really reflective. Of how that was, so yeah, that was that was the first time I ever heard anything like that, and then I think that record inspired a huge amount of not only message type records, but a reality rap type. A lot of people, I think, a lot of people who were going through things, sitting on their porch, just like, "Oh, okay, well, I can tell my story that same way." And it they repeated, and then it got rougher, and it got harder, and it became -hmm. um, a genre within itself.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I I remember when I heard the message for the first time where it had that line that said, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I was like, whoa, like that was like, Mm -hmm. now it sounds like kind of quaint because obviously, you know, songs got a lot, you know, more explicit and a lot tougher, but even just that was in, paired with like these kind of disco funky beats because it was an upbeat song. I remember it being like, whoa, they're really going there, you know? So, yeah. and then another one that was a big one for me that I remember was Children's Story by Slick Rick. That one, that one hit me really hard. Are there any yeah. other songs for you that, uh for you personally that when you heard them, when you heard them lyrically, really um kind of hit you?
2: PSK, What Does It Mean by Scooty D. It came out in 1985. And it was the record that it was um, the beat. The, the music was kind of crazy because it was like boom, boom. So you're like, you just into and you think it's gonna party, and he starts talking real stuff. And it's P S K. What does What does it mean? That actually meant, I think it was Play School Killers, which was the name of the gang in Philadelphia. No one ever knew that, but yeah. that was the name of it. And then he went into it, and that was the first time somebody purse and said the N word. So, and that was in 85. So that was another one that it was like, oh, okay. It's, this is real. This is not just a party thing. This is not just hip hop on the corner. Everyone's just getting together a words. This is something that could mean something You to speak more on what it is instead of just being party records. You can use this to put your message out so It's almost like a 60s, early 70s, Bob Dylan-esque um, Sly and the Family Stone type thing, but in hip hop and that that was a real big one
1: so what would we consider the first golden age of hip-hop
2: the first golden age of hip-hop was 1988 and the reason why that was a golden age was because one year before then before it grew up in 87 you had Rock Kims paid in full l.l Cool radio was real big going in the big endeavor um public in the master show it came out the Biggest I know mainstream American album was Licensed to Ill by Beastie Boys was in '86. Run DMC's Raising Hell which is huge mainstream-wise. I'll say the second biggest mainstream record at that time. So you had all these records that were real big, hitting Billboard, selling millions of records, and then '88 you get It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. You get straight out of Compton. You get Big Daddy Kane's debut. You get everything New Kim's second album. You get two of the first big female rap albums, Salt-N-Pepa's debut album, you get NC Lyte's debut album, you get De La Soul a year later in 89, but they were in 88 with the Jungle Brothers, which is their first album in the year. So 88 was the first year where West Coast with NWA and Ice-T and everything, and you had the um, East Coast with, at the time, some of the biggest records, out in mainstream and then you had um, the bubble of the music box in New York. That was the first video hip hop channel. So a lot of those videos came through that way. And then you had a radio station, K-Day, which was the LA based, were playing all those records. So you had radio relating all those records out. You had a video outlet at East of these Coast putting all those records out. And then some of the greatest albums of all time came out in that one year. And that was just uh, the, the golden era boom. That
0: was it it also didn't hurt that uh, Yo! MTV Raps debuted that year. And I mean, we talked about the message in, in Slick Wreck and all these videos that just did not get airplay on MTV. I had to see them on Night Flight. Uh, yeah. or-
1: oh, well, I was going to say it's interesting because, you know, it's quite famous that we know that when MTV first started, they they pretty much played no black music except maybe maybe Prince. And it took, you know, a lot of lobbying and Sony basically saying, we're going to pull all your videos, you, all our videos, if you don't play Michael Jackson. And then Michael Jackson broke the color barrier. And then, you know, they started to play more black artists on MTV. And then the whole thing happened again a few more years later when rap happened. And MTV did not want to play rap. And what's really fascinating is when finally that show got greenlit, they gave it like a crazy graveyard time slot, yes. like 2 a.m., and it ended up being like the highest rated pilot or highest rated premiere episode in MTV history. It just like absolutely blew up. And that's when, you know, MTV realized that they needed to get on board. And, you know, of course, now, you know, hip hop is literally to this day, it is the most popular genre of music in America. And, you know, I think it kind of started with Yo MTV Raps Dude. Do, do we have any memories of that particular show and how it kind of broke these artists? On a mainstream level, I loved the OMTV raps. I loved how it felt like you were like hanging out in a rec room with Ed Lover and Dr Dre. I just loved it.
0: I think one thing that really helped, uh, and Duran mentioned uh, Eric being Rakim paid f- uh, Rakim uh, paid in full. Uh, that was a big alternative club crossover hit too, with that Oprah Haza sample and everything. I mean, you heard that, yeah, you heard that next to you know, I'm trying to think, '88, well, it was hot, and I fucked where I was at, but. No one had any problem dropping that in there. And I think if it had not got that exposure on MTV, uh, it may have been a little more underground uh, than it ended up being because that that really broke through.
2: Yeah, with me, it was being born and raised in L.A. when I saw Fat by Freddy on the back of a pickup truck that we And that... Let's check out. That was it for me. It was like seeing there you go. my next door neighbor and my neighborhood homeboys on national TV with um, Converse jeans and white t shirts on. It blew my mind. That was, that was it for me. Um, when, when that happened, Five Five Freddie from New York to LA, interviewed them, and they were just as real in that interview without cursing, of they that they were on their records. And that was a seminal. I would say number number one and a half for me. The other half of it when Run DMC hosted MTV Awards, yes. and I think it was at a concert, and they did that, and that blew my mind because Run DMC was one of my. That was a lot of our first Beatles. That was our first big act, and to have them on there and introduce these videos and just be on TV and be so human of covering rap that's not theirs. There's other another um, artist on there that was awesome too so i would say one and a half is definitely nwa but that other half
0: would be Run-D-M-C. going back a bit with, with run dmc that's actually the first uh black rap song video played on mtv was king of rock well, we have,
1: I mean, there's no way we could talk about 80s rap at, without talking about Run DMC because they, they kind of changed everything. Even before Walk This Way came out, they they changed everything. And, it's, and the King of Rock video is interesting because in it, they're like basically going into a rock and roll museum, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they later got inducted into. And they're pretty much stomping on everything. They're stomping on like, you know, all these artifacts and they're saying they're the kings of rock when, as I mentioned earlier, there were all these rockists who were saying, this isn't real music, you know, this isn't like rock and roll, this isn't legit music with people playing instruments. And I'm curious, why do we think there were so many great artists coming up at this time, but it was Run DMC that really broke everything open, broke things open at MTV, broke things open at radio. Was it because they sort of embraced that rock side, they had guitars, they, you know, obviously later, very famously, Bridged the you know kind of started rap rock with Aerosmith. What was it about Run DMC that made them the one that became kind of the first like crossover superstars of MTV rap?
2: So what prepped them for MTV, and I, I wasn't of course I wasn't there at the time. That's like seven years ago. But <laughs> I would say what got into these eyes on them. I used to go to the record store with my mom all the time, and she would let me pick a record. And I remember seeing that first album of the brick wall behind them, and it was pointing like this, and got that record home in um, hard times, like just the, the hard beat. It shifted rap, because you had Planet Rock from their African Band Bottles, which was a dance record. You had 8th Wonder and all these records from, um, the guys who put out the message had them putting out party records. Curtis Bowie even putting out kind of dance records or records that were kind of really popular. And then you had these guys from New York with leather jackets, t shirts, jeans, and laceless shell toad theaters. And they were rapping on hard beats. And they were talking about things that was going on in the neighborhood, but then they were talking about sucking and And they put the element of what hip hop was about made it very plain and easy, where all you can do is just pay attention to what they were saying and what their style was. And then they had Jam Master J, which was at the time one of the most respected DJs in rap. And that all created a formula for the first gold album in hip hop history. That was the first hip hop gold album. So I think MTV looked at that and was like, hey, we need to pay attention to these guys. When they put out the Kings of Rock album and they did that video, it was like you said, you noted that real well. It was a, how can I say that? It was an answer, almost like a disc record to all the older rock artists, even to this day with the Rock Hall, saying that that's not real rap music, that's just beat, that's a fad, it's something that's popular like disco. And they took what they did, showed them that, okay, not only is this real, but we can do what you do. Rap on top of what you do and still keep our our whole style, our whole everything, not change anything and add what you do. And it just it blew up. Plus, the rest of that album was really good. So I think MTV paid attention to them because they were the hottest in the street, and they shifted the change from dance to kind of a serious, more core sound. And then when they added a to it, it was almost like an answer of, oh, we're not real? Let me show you how real we are. Not only are we going to make an album called Kinsley Rock, we're going to make a video that's going to just change everything and you have no choice but to play us and to get along with us and do our thing. And then that album became the first platinum rap album of all time. So yeah, I I think MTV was good to pick that up and Run DMC was even better to stay the course of what they were doing but just add to it. And I I think that was a perfect formula for that time.
0: Run DMC very smart as well with the the music video for King of Rock because they had Larry Bud Melman in it. It was done with like a wink and very comedic. And it was yeah. almost like a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down a little better for that audience. Yeah. So yeah, they, were, yeah. they were savvy. They weren't dumb.
1: Well, obviously doing the the Aerosmith collaboration, you know, broke open so many doors and, you know, I mean, it's actually interesting because I think that collaboration helped Aerosmith more than it helped Run-DMC. I mean, it is responsible for pretty much reviving Aerosmith's dead career. But to go back about two or three years before that, I want to, you know, rap rock is a hybrid, but I think one of the first, you mentioned Africa Bombada. I don't think Time Zone World Destruction by John Lydon and Africa Bombada gets enough credit. That is the first time I heard a rock artist, it probably, I don't know if it was the first time, but it was the first time I heard a rock artist, which was John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, from the Pistols and a and a, a hip hop artist, Africa Bombada, join forces together. And that song, I don't think it was actually a big hit, was it? But it was on K-Rock all the time. I'm so happy I grew up in LA. It was on K-Rock all the time. And that song just hits so hard. And even lyrically today, it's like kind of, you know, it's basically about the end of the world. It's like this um soundscape, and it really sounds quite relevant today. Don, I'm curious if what you think historically that song, where its place is in uh, hip-hop culture, because I don't think a lot of people know about that song.
0: Uh, well, we've talked about it on oh, I think the first episode of Totally Eighties, our apocalypse uh, episode, end of yes, the world
1: our, our, our Cold War songs playlist. Yes, you're right. It,
0: it was a way uh, to target uh, little white new wave kids like me who <laughs> had zero <laughs> intersection with something as cool as Africa Bamada and and, uh, and things like that. And boy, it worked because that was the jam. I remember um, having a special order, the 12 inch from Camelot Music, I carry it. Uh, but I, I only saw it on night flight. I think I saw it maybe once on MTV or on IRS as The Cutting Edge.
1: It's really punk. It's punk rock. I've interviewed John Lydon about it. The blood on his face is McDonald's ketchup packets. They went to (laughs) McDonald's before they did the video. Uh, But, I mean, the video looks like it costs five bucks, but, like, in the best possible way. And, like, you've got, like, John Lydon's voice, and then you've got all these, like, B-boy dancers. It's just so cool. And it made a big impression on me. I think that was one of the – yeah definitely you know them and then of course what run dmc would did with ours but of course what public enemy later did with uh anthrax you know we started to see i know this i don't think this i think this was 90s but the judgment night soundtrack was so important to me
0: awesome. yeah
1: so, so i mean the fact that we had like Sir, what was it like? Sir, mix a lot with the Lemonheads. There's no Sir mix a lot with like Thurston Moore. It was like
0: it was, I want. See, I want to see Sir mix a lot with Evan Dando, please.
1: It's something <laughs> like that. Teenage fan club with Soul, like amazing. But you know that sort of crossover. But to sort of keep on the subject of rock and rap, you talked about the Beastie Boys. You talked about LL Cool J. We, the Def Jam aesthetic, and you know, can we talk a little bit about how important Def Jam was to R- Rick Rubin? Russell Simmons yeah, was really looking at the yeah. room, bringing you know, people like Run DMC and later the Beastie Boys to the mainstream.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I thought about that, but with you saying it out loud, the core of the rap rock, almost rap rock genre almost, did come from Rick Rubin. Even though Rick Rubin, Run DMC wasn't on Def Jam, but they were managed by Rush, which was um, Russell Simmons' management company. And Rick Rubin, of course, was influenced with all that. Rick Rubin produced Raising hell. Rick was a metal boy, punk boy, who loved the rebelliousness of hip-hop. A lot of the, the beginning of hip-hop had that sound to it. So they were feeding from each other. I think when, as they would come to New York, like Debbie Harry did, they would go to the clubs or they would go to the corners and they would see what was going on and they would collab before they even put it on watch, before they even went to the studio. What Rick Rubin did with... Um, in, with not only the Run-DMC stuff, but especially that Brazen Hell album and then later that Beastie Boys album. I think he, his main thing was the 808. I think he took rock records did them exactly the way he always would do them, but he put an on. And if you listen to mostly to Brooklyn from Beastie Boys, till this day that gets played on K-Rock, till this day. And that's something that if you're listening to K-Day, if you're listening to The Beat, if you're listening to Power 106, and you're just surfing the channels and that song comes on, you wouldn't even know that's a rock station. It just flows. And Rick was the, the best at that. I mean, he put out one of the greatest death metal albums in all time, swear. And that was, in, that was the same year he did License the Ill. So it was real good that he was able to take that line. I, mean, I wouldn't even say he tread the line. He created that line. He, he created that line and he did it best. And the other producer they used, which was back in the day, he was one producer was Larry Smith. Larry Smith was a hip hop producer, but he was into drums a lot. He was into R and and not only did he do uh, Run DMC, he did DVD as well. And they all kind of had that 808 with a guitar in. Rick just took it first. And that, that was the missing element of, I would say, any other rap label that came out at the time, the profiles, your Sugar Hills, anything, the missing element was with you. And Rick, he gets props for being one of the greatest producers of all time, but they don't want to name him as a rap producer when they mention the Marley Marls and the Dr. Dre's and the Pete Ross. Rick's name should be in that top five with them because he was one that respected the culture, brought another element to it and really just rose, like you said, Aerosmith from the dead and continued hip hop's streak up. So yeah, Rick had a lot to do with that, um, with that early 80s, with the rock sound of I'm Bad, and then even with Mama Said, Knock You Out, even though he wasn't involved in that, LL remembered that and brought that in. And all those producers inspired by that too.
1: Wasn't the Beastie Boys License to Ill the first rap album to go to number one on the- Yes, it was.
2: First number yeah. one Billboard 200 album. Um, and that same year, Raising Hell made it to number three. So Raising Hell was number three, and it was like, oh, we broke the record, we're good. And then- these white boys came with this college rock and went to number one, but they bridged it and they went on tour together. Run DNC did the Raising Hell tour with the Beastie Boys. So it was all love. And I love how they took from each other. And if you look at a documentary of either one of them, they both mentioned each other. So, yeah, it, it took one to make the other work. And it, it, it went that way. That was, what, 10 million Album sales, that just that one year in rap, that was the most ever sold
0: at that time. Just with those two albums. Yeah. Well, still, really, the production, that was the album that was like stadium rock almost. I mean, I can still feel the bass of Hold It Now, Hit It. You know, yeah. right. a car in 1986 through a small town and cranking it up and having a cop cross the street with you like um, and it was it was crazy that, you know, sh- uh, she's on it. I remember seeing that on MTV, but I don't yeah. remember, you know, I mean, it's kind of effed up that it took that to get rap on MTV in full rotation.
1: But since we're on the subject of Def Dam and we mentioned L.O. Cool J. Duran, I, I want to Ask you this. I have a theory that I Need Love by LL Cool J laid down the groundwork for all of the sensitive rappers of today, like Drake, because that was the Mm. first time I remember. You know, we had party songs, rap party songs, we had socially conscious songs, we had gangster rap and songs that were very like tough, we had diss songs, but that was the first time I recall hearing a sensitive song about love and romance in hip hop and, and it was a huge hit. I mean, love was a huge hit. And now when you listen to it now, it sounds kind of quaint, almost sounds like a lonely Island song or something because it's just so earnest. But I remember at the time being like, Oh, that's nice. LL. It's nice that you're being, that you need love.
0: You're not going to count Roxanne, Roxanne.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe, maybe it was a second, but uh, I mean, that was like, I don't, I trying to remember how that was received at the time, because at that time, Ah, uh, in the late '80s, hip hop was so much about braggadocio and machismo and puffing your chest out and saying you're the greatest. And LL Cool J had a lot of songs like that, but then he did this like very like sensitive, like beta male song. And um, what was the reception to that at the time? And do you feel that did open the doors, like I'm theorizing?
2: I think it 100% opened the doors, and I think LL was able to do that because with radio and with the album that that song was on, the very first single, I'm Bad, LL put himself in that space of, I'm the greatest rapper, I'm the hardest rapper. And mind you, when radio came out, he was 16, so we're talking two years later, he was 18 years old. And for him to be that hard, that miracle, the muscles and all these things, he, he had, somewhat of a sex appeal anyway, even being that hard. So with him being that hard and no one ever questioned on how good of an MC he was, he was able to do a record like that and no one say anything. And I remember the video, I think that was the video where it was a continuation because it was I'm bad and then I think they kidnapped his his girlfriend and right. he had to get her back. And that was the whole storyline to that. That made Bigger Than Death for One a huge job on me Yeah it definitely paved the way. I remember at that time, once he put that record out, Heavy D had one on his album, on um, the Living Large album. Koogee Rap had one on his album. Um, Big Daddy Kane had one on his album. But it really didn't get well-received. Then Sick Rick, when he had a teenage love, that was one. Once Nelly came out, Nelly came, and when Nelly put out Dilemma with Kelly Rowling, I remember uh-huh. seeing an interview, and he specifically said, this song, that what inspired me to make this song was I Need Love. He said, I Need Love made you do this song. If you think back on Nelly, he was another one. So, yeah, um, that song paved the way for a lot of things. And as hip-hop got bigger and as a business, it got huge. And it kept sticking to one thing, was gangster rap time. It's all the gangster rappers. It's bling, bling time. It's bling, bling out nelly went and said hey i want to make a song about my girlfriend because all of us are very hard and we still have girlfriends and it brought it back to that so yeah ll was a direct route to that
1: We've talked about a, a popular and very important groundbreaking duo, Run DMC. But, you know, on the other flip side of relationships, you know, I, we have to talk about Salt and Pepper, who were so important to me. They rapped a lot about sex positivity. I mean, when I heard Push It for the first time, it hit me like an atom bomb, you know, how fierce it was. And some of the songs I I'm mentioning now are more of their 90s songs. But You know, like None of Your Business, What a Man, Shoop, you know, their early to mid-90s songs were very sex positive, very female point of view. I really liked them for multiple reasons but one of the reasons i liked them was because they were very super feminine but tomboyish at the same time like they were tough but they weren't like trying to be one of the boys you know they were they were very feminine like you know they had a feminine appearance you know they were into the fashion they had the iconic leather jackets the haircuts the earrings the makeup fun fact they have a makeup line now and i'm wearing their eyeshadow as we speak if you're watching this on video and you look at this <laughs> beautiful pink sparkly, all of them are named like there's what a man eyeshadow and like shoot lipstick. I wear all of it. I, I wear all of the makeup all the time. 't
2: right.
1: that either and the colors are super saturated very glittery very pigmented very fierce very in your face very salt and pepper very necessary there's actually a color called very necessary very necessary palette so i and i interviewed them at the time that the makeup came out they were you know but we we talked a lot about just the fact that they embraced their femininity while at the same time being very tough and being very strong and they were like not the first, but like for me, along with like MC Light, uh, definitely let's talk about women in hip hop because Salt and Pepper was the one that made, is the first one I have a very visceral memory of. I am a
2: huge fan of um, women in hip hop, huge. To the point where some people are surprised, which kind of gets me, but I, I get why. Hip hop is very misogynistic, and it's because it was a male, it, it started off as a male created genre. And it was a male-driven genre. You look at all the biggest artists, all the different changes. Of course, they're male-dominated, but you had sequence that had Angie Stone in it, that was Sugar Hill, and then and Pepper came. And again, they were someone that was discovered by a male producer, um Herbie Lovebug, and it came out. But the very first song, and Pepper, just like Roxanne Chante, let's go back to Roxanne, yeah. Chanté. Roxanne Chante came to fruition, standing in the same project later with Molly Mall, and Molly Mall said, hey, you freestyle all over the place, you're killing these guys, why don't you come up and do a record for me? And she was doing laundry, and in between putting her set in the dryer, she went up to Molly's apartment and did um, Roxanne's event, where she answered the DTFO, Roxanne, Roxanne. And she went into that, it was just an answer record. It blew up and just made it feel big. What was so good about Roxanne so Sanchez and why she was able to ride that wave is because she was a really good battle MC. And she wasn't a good female battle MC. She wasn't the only girl that was a battle MC. She was a good battle MC period. And she got the respect for being an MC rather be male or female. So with her doing the answer Record and it worked for her and she was able to be the first female of the cold able label, things like that, that inspired Salt, Salt and Pepper. So Herbie Lovebook, when he got them, they were working at Sears, and got them to do a record, and they did an answer record to Dougie Fresh's Lipsticks, The Show called The Showstopper. That was their entry into it, because that was, that was the thing. Um, if it can happen for Roxanne, let do it for us. So they teamed together and did the um, answer record for that. The reason why I was always a fan of female MCs, because I'm being raised by my grandmother, my aunt, and my mom, if someone did something just as well, I didn't look at it as they did it well for a girl. They just did it well. And my mom, you know, always taught me that. I was a single mom. So my mom didn't do great, because she was a single mom. I did, mom did it right because she was a great mom. So I always took that same mentality. That album's a classic. Those songs are classics. And then when MC Light came, who was inspired by and Pepper, and MC Light was considered a great MC, not a great female MC. She stood... Head and shoulders without him and get that pain, with that light as a rock out. And it was um, she had The Light as a Rock, she had 10% Disc, which she went at Antoinette again, a disc record that her brother's, um, her brother in audio too was like, hey, why don't you diss this girl's trying to diss us? She came up the same way, but then she did Cram to Understand You, which was a song, it was almost like a uh commercial about drugs. So she was talking about this guy she was dating at the end, she ended up finding out he was doing crack. So it was this MC who could talk about all these different things, but she could stand head and shoulder. Then when it came to Pro Black, Queen Latifah came. And Queen Latifah, just a, the album cover of her with this Africa garb on, the Africa thing, and she's standing like this, that was just powerful. Male or female, it was just powerful. And I always had a love for female MCs, one, because of how I was raised, and two, like today, they had to do two, two to three times as much to stand on the shoulders or stand head and shoulders with a male MC that didn't have to do as much. And they killed it. Some of the greatest female MCs are just as good as some of the great male MCs. So I always had a real good thing for MCs. And then being from LA, I remember when Ice Cube brought Yo-Yo out. And Yo-Yo was a real big influence for me. Yo-Yo went to the same high school as I did. Her mom was a janitor there. And when she met Ice Cube at a swap meet and Ice Cube got her to rap with him, the first record we heard was "It's a Man's World" on America's Most Wanted, because is a classic album. But she, she outrapped him on that record. And at the time, he was considered one of the greatest MCs of all time. At that time, coming from N.W.A., then he had his own, then he had a classic album. She outrapped him on that record. So, with you having Salt and Pepper, MC Light, Queen Latifah, and Yo-Yo, you could—they set the bar for what a female MC could do. And just like everything in the world, they always had to prove themselves two, three times as much where a male rapper only had to just come out. So to this day, that's still the case with um, Kim and Foxy. They were sexy. But if you go past their clothes and what they were doing, they could rap. they could really ride. They always had this creative sensibility because women are um, you were just talking about the makeup that um, you had. They were always creative. They always brought color to it, but they were great MCs exactly so I always like female MCs I think they should be looked at more as MCs and accessories because I think now it's accessories where we want to bring in that female crowd so let's bring in a female MC and go back and forth they should be held the same way because they can wrap just as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, I know this is a video. This is some people watching us on video, but I did bring up the this is not sponsored by Salt and Pepper Cosmetics, but I am holding up the the beautiful um palettes. There is the hot, cool, and vicious eyeshadow palette for night and the very necessary palette for day. I just like the fact that they, you know, these female uh, MCs, and and this is, I I would uh, say this of the ones of today, like Cardi B and Nicki Minaj, they embrace their sexuality and their femininity, but they're, they spit nails, they're very tough. And uh, Salt and Pepper were one that, uh, J.J. Fad was another one for me. Uh, back in the day, so yeah, I think uh, I think it, you said it very well, Deron.
0: He just mentioned uh, Roxanne, Roxanne Chante, who I wanted to talk about because that was the first female rapper that really made an impact in my little Midwest town. Because of the war between uh, her and the real Roxanne, uh, <laughs> remember that there was like a. Back yes. and scene. I'm the real Roxanne. I'm not.
1: A simpler time. Okay, well, obviously, this is going to be way too much for just one episode, so we are all going to have to get back together for our part two. Duran, can you please come back and join us for a part two? Yes, definitely. Awesome. You know, we're going to wrap this for now, but we will be back to talk more about Hip Hop of the 80s with Duran Bowers next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.
2: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader.